Hello and welcome to Hype, the podcast that offers a fresh take on the controversies thrown up by some of the most hyped books, plays, films, music and TV shows of recent years. Join us as we work out where these cultural trends have come from and what they reveal about modern society. I'm Zoe Strimple, columnist, dating expert and historian of gender in modern Britain. And I'm Tom Stammers. I'm a historian of France and a general cultural glutton with a weakness for all things 19th century. Zoe and I have been consuming and debating culture together ever since we were at university, which is now so long ago, indeed, it feels like England was lifting the World Cup. Yes, I think you were, um, I mean, I want to say you were Pele, but he wasn't, he wasn't. The He's not, I mean, you could say you were Pele. <laughs> do you, but do you know who the England captain was in 66? Of course, you'd be Bobby Moore. Oh, see, there yeah. you go. There you go. Okay, well, you, you were his best mate. Um, that's how long ago it was. So um, as uh, hinted by that sort of jumble of, of, of japery, today we're going to do a very quick burst just on the World Cup in Qatar. And this was, you know, obviously a widely appreciated World Cup for being weird, held in a, you know, repressive regime that in no way comes up to the standards of, of Western uh, globalized uh, society, um, nothing liberal about Qatar apart from the amount of money they like to to make and splash around. And um, obviously, uh, FIFA corruption uh, was known to play a big part in how it ended up having it, as well as before the tournament started, there were tales of, you know, sheds for fans erected that barely did the job in the blistering heat, not to mention Heineken or, or Budweiser, one of the big sponsors, suddenly finding that after all, the Qatari authorities decided not to let uh, alcohol be consumed um, in the stadium or around it. Uh, so all, all in all, sort of a shambles style of World Cup. But then it got off to a politically contentious start, but ended up in a in a slightly different register, as it was perhaps always bound to do. Tom, what, what was your feeling about this uh, World Cup uh, from start to finish? My feeling was the power of sport as a, as a platform is that Qatar has nonetheless benefited from hosting it. Despite all of the picking over of human rights violations and all of the comments about, um, as you say, the workers building these stadiums in terrible conditions, actually Qatar has come out strengthened by the whole thing. I happened to see a chunk of the World Cup while I was in Egypt. And although a lot of Egyptians resent the Qataris as, as you say, kind of corrupt and overly, um, you know, kind of wealthy sort of plutocrats, Actually, the whole Arab world ended up rallying behind Qatar. And it's not a surprise, obviously, that Morocco did so well. And so you created a huge amount of pride in the region. The Saudis apparently now want to host the Olympics because uh, the World Cup has been so successful for Qatar. So actually, sport once again proves that it can be, you know, politically twisted by the hosts, nearly always to their own advantage. And there's a long story of that in the World Cup. And um, I'm reminded of Mussolini's uh, use of the World Cup in 1934, when the trophy indeed was even modelled on the Coppa del Duce on the head of Mussolini. So there's a long history here of kind of regimes benefiting from hosting the World Cup, benefiting from winning the World Cup. Um, in general, I think the Qataris actually made a great success of it. Uh, and it's clearly kind of, I think what it represents in a way is the true kind of globalization of football, that although the reason they got it is dirty and it's to do with dirty money in FIFA, the whole feel of the contest to me was a sort of passing of the torch towards the World Cup that's actually much less centered on Europe. And I think that was reflected even in the performance of some of the teams. 
Absolutely. There was a certain point at which it looked like this could be the first World Cup in history where the final was maybe had teams that were neither in South America or Europe. I mean, Morocco was was the sort of unexpected victor there until the semi-final. And it was also interesting to see Iran uh, do well. In the end, it was actually a very classic World Cup between France and Argentina, and it was actually quite gripping. But Tom, do you want to, I, I, to me, I, I'd quite like to just quickly go back and think about stuff at the beginning, the BBC's first broadcast where they didn't even play the opening ceremony that the Qataris had done. I mean, it was a very overtly con- condemning, uh, critical sort of coverage. But did that all end up just being, you know, as, you know, I did wonder at the time, are we, is everyone just going to forget all the, all the righteous objections? And throughout the World Cup, obviously people have made a lot of song and dance about boycotting it and, and you know, all the human rights abuses and stuff. But in the end, did it just, you know, as you say, did Qatar just come out, come out well? I mean, I wonder what you make of the sort of politicization of the coverage. Because after all, the BBC was there. England was there. So really was there, at, you know, it talk is cheap, really, isn't it? Um, so uh, you know, there's there's that element to it. There's also the the political gestures of the the knee taking, um, the desire to take the to to wear the LBGT flag, and then that FIFA saying that's not allowed. But the pick and mix of political causes that that people that the Western countries tried to use this World Cup for, you know, Black Lives Matter, LGBT, and I wrote a, an article for the JC, which did very well, the Jewish Chronicle. Uh, about how Iran, for instance, you know, and Qatar have rhetoric about Jews in Israel, which is extremely dubious. But of course, that wasn't even on any lips at all, zero. So there's a sort of unevenness of what gets picked out as a sort of signature issue, I think. Is that fair or unfair? I think that's fair. I think a lot of the political rage kind of died away after the, once people got their head around the fact that it was taking place in Qatar, you know, there was a couple of weeks of grumbling and then essentially it just became about the sport. Um, which is what the regime obviously is banking on. It's interesting, I think maybe in Britain it got re-politicised at a time when Britain gets knocked out. I think in a way it's interesting in this country that when our hopes of winning fall away, it was easier to then say, well, the whole thing was a kind of, you know, a nasty tournament in the first place and, you know, the heat got in the way and people start kind of going back on why this is a sort of outlier as World Cups go. It's also interesting the politics actually just came back yesterday. I don't know if you saw... And Gary Neville is in all this trouble because of the ITV coverage where he compared Qatari workers to the plight of striking workers in the UK. So Mm. he made these analogies between sort of forced labour in Qatar and what's happening with industrial problems in Britain, which is a reminder, I think, that in Britain, at least, this World Cup has not been the kind of classic feel good distraction that sports tournaments tend to be. You know, when they tend to be in the summer, this is a way of kind of fitting in with the mood music of the summer holiday. It's usually a way of making the country feel better about itself. I don't think it's happened this time. I think for whatever reason in Britain, people have not been distracted from the domestic woes. Um, And Qatar in a way has been used almost to reinforce some of the kind of anxiety about Britain's domestic woes. Um, But the pick and mix of liberal political causes, I agree with you, Zoe, I don't think actually have cut through. Um, And Qatar comes out strengthened by this rather than weakened. Um, What did you make of the British coverage? Because as I say, I was away for a chunk of it, Zoe, and I don't know whether you felt that, you know, the whole country started to lose interest after Harry Kane screwed up that penalty or whether you think that like momentum for the World Cup has continued throughout. I think interest was definitely lost. I mean, I I watched that uh, 
quarterfinal with um, someone who is obsessive about the England team and never misses them and is generally obsessive about football. But after that, there was a distinctive lessening in interest and this person didn't even watch the semifinal uh, or either of the semifinals. So um, I think, you know, nationally, in terms of the coverage, it it just, you know, the, it became about... Um, will Gareth Southgate, the English manager, stay on? But it's, you know, it's such an old story, Tom. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I wrote an article for The Spectator about this. The old thing of England does, it, it, there's a, there is a curse and it there's a sense of inevitability about it. I mean, it, it almost evokes like a Greek, like a Greek tragedy or Greek drama, like Cassandra predicting what will be, you know, the, the England curse will continue, you know, the prophecy as it were. And I, I think there was a real sense of that actually sitting in the pub, watching that quarterfinal, knowing Harry Kane would miss that penalty because that's what England does under pressure. Like it's too much pressure and it must, it must fail. So I think, I think the whole country, but you know, in a way I I thought there was a sort of, preparedness for that I think for the Mm. first time that I've experienced watching England there was a sense of almost genteel appreciation for how far England got that it gratitude that it hadn't disgraced itself unlike Germany uh and and Italy who hadn't even made it into the who didn't even qualify astonishingly but you know the, the idea of England winning just I think this 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 World Cup really showed how how much people don't think that's ever going to happen in their <laughs> lifetimes. So there is an interesting curse. I think the England psychology is one of the most interesting things. And the the eternal question of how you can have a, a Premier League like England and then just kind of be, just not have what, for instance, Mbappe had on the, on the pitch for France, you know, that, that kind of sheer ability to sort of be, believe in himself under that kind of astonishing mm-hmm. pressure. What did you think of the idea that this was the best final of you know the greatest final ever is that just classic 2022 hyperbole are we just so unused to seeing the unpredictability of human beings in action or you know what did you make of that because you neither you nor I are natural football watchers and both of us found very unusually that our attention was gripped I would say so just to take one step back before I answer that I think in a way I was secretly relieved that England didn't progress and obviously that was because of my own francophilia but I think there's a bigger point here which is that this year was the big year for the Lionesses. And actually, if Britain, if the male team had done very well again, all of that spectacular transformation in the women's game would have been, you know, once again, maybe kind of made into a footnote, you know, the great victory of the Lionesses at the Euros. So I think for for the bigger culture of football in this country, it was good that the women are the ones kind of absolutely, you know, that their crown isn't something they have to share. In terms of why the final was so great, I can only use my own experience, which, as you say, is hard to concentrate for me for the full 90 minutes, let alone kind of extra time on top. But I was gripped. And I did think, although it was a sort of lackluster start for France yesterday, um, the second half and extra time were both completely thrilling. Um, And so you have to say that this was just the drama of the whole thing. And I think what's been interesting with this World Cup is how personalities have been have been part of the, the script and yeah. maybe that says something about the coverage, but the fascination with the messy story, like, is this going to be the redemptive moment for him? Yeah. The fascination with Mbappe, who was you know, massively talked up in the English game and ended up yeah. not being that much of a threat. But this, yeah. and equally Didier Deschamps and, you know, his kind of career yeah. in France, it has become about these sort of titanic individuals. 
And so much of the coverage has been about this kind of game of personalities or the kind of clash of the titans kind of thing. Um, so it has felt almost like a boxing match at various points where these kind of two men are going head to head. It's been sort of a classic sort of encounter of the greats. Uh, so, yeah, I think it was I think it was really exciting. I think there's something to to note, though. I mean, here we are getting all bound up in the kind of, you know, lovely, interesting final. And, you know, the football ends up winning out. I still think the Qatar thing should not be brushed aside because imagine if Israel had qualified. Israeli journalists were being harassed there. Um, people refused to speak to them. People were... Um, holding up offensive signs like it was it was it was rough even for Israelis who were trying to report imagine if the Israeli team had got through and had had a confrontation with Qatar with Saudi Arabia with Iran um you know they were supposed to have kosher food they then withdrew it so I I don't know I, I think that it's too easy in a sense to say well the gate you know let's just forget about Qatar and focus on the on the game and it, it you know do you think it's it's excessive to think of um, resonances with Germany Olympics 1936, where everyone thought, well, the, the sporting is amazing. Like, whatever. Don't focus on the other stuff. I wouldn't, uh, as I say, I wouldn't compare uh, those regimes in that sense. But you are right to say, I mean, the, 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 the politics of this is icky. And I'm not saying that the kind of politics deserves to be kind of overlooked. I'm just saying in practice, it happened to be overlooked. Because, you know, yeah. we're not talking primarily about Qatari human rights violations. We're kind of talking about other things. Um, I think that the, the ghost of politics is always there in sport. I mean, my feeling is sport can't be reduced to politics. But politics mm -hmm. is always part of it. Is, is, is one thing in the mix, I suppose. Do, do um, you think, but do you think there's a country that, do you think there is a situation in which the World Cup wouldn't be able to go ahead? Do you think that... Nor if North Korea decided to, you know, right. is, is there is there any limits to what the world will find acceptable as a as a beneficiary of being able to host the World Cup? I mean, there have clearly been boycotts previously, and it's not dissimilar from the discussion about the Olympics. You know, the whole question of you know whether you know American athletes would be willing to kind of appear in Russia and so on. You know, yeah. not taking part in the nineteen eighty Olympics famously because of the Afghan War. And I can't see Russia being given a major sporting contest in the immediate future. I think that's mm. um, that is kind of unthinkable. Yeah. Um, but I think that the question about whether the boycotts are successful, you know, and whether it should be a question of the boycott decisions being made by individual nations versus whether sporting organisations themselves should be deciding who can be trusted. And um, I certainly think FIFA acted pretty despicably in giving it to Qatar. But I think now that it's gone to Qatar, a precedent has been set. Um, and football is part of a kind of global culture. And if you think that sport does have a kind of responsibility to try and engage with nations who don't match European standards of human rights or European standards of democracy, then I think more and more this contest does need to be shared um, in a wider world. Maybe, you know, Lagos. There's, there's a place that would be a great place to host it in a few years' time. I would like to see yeah. these big global contests um, yes. be willing to reach out to these these kind of uh, um, global south. Absolutely. I think the, the one thing to note before, about coverage, um, my, you know, my, my father was watching and, you know, he was having to, he's in America and, and the American coverage was unsatisfactory, he was saying, and I'm, I'm not <laughs> surprised. But, you know, one thing that goes un referred to which is obviously very interesting in these times especially with the take the knee so teams like the french team are 90 percent black or yeah. um it's it, i mean there's a there's a big thing going on race wise in the in football i mean this is this is not you know it, it's just very interesting to consider that you know like 
the idea of a, of a predominantly white team for France is kind of completely unthinkable and it's melted away. People are completely used to the sort of sheer, it's not even diversity. It's actually, it's actually not diverse. They're, they're most, it, you know, it is very much majority black, I think across the board. I don't know if the England team is the same, um, but it is, it is kind of another feature for sure. Which speaking about the French situation is one reason why I wanted France to win because um, you know, in contemporary France, the French victory in 1998 was so important for the visibility of immigrant communities in France. It was seen as a kind of um, a moment of kind of racial unity in a society which otherwise can feel very segregated. And I think it's interesting yesterday that Macron was there. I don't know if you spotted him in the stadium, yeah, Zoe, yeah, but, I did, yeah. but, but this is really something which has political capital back home in terms of uh, celebrating the contribution of um, many of these uh, racial minorities to the French national team. So, yeah, I think it's I think it's very interesting what what it means to the complexion of European football, and I think it's really interesting for what it means about how European nations have created a new kind of pantheon of heroes. That sport does allow some of these questions about you know who looks like a Dutchman, who looks like a Frenchman, and yeah. that those categories have really opened up. I think in a good way, yeah. and it has created much more sense of kind of solidarity and integration in places. Although you might say this summer. Um, you know, when the, uh, or maybe not this summer, actually two years ago, uh, with the notorious English penalties that were missed, there was a different response to Marcus Rashford, for instance, than there was yeah. perhaps to the white players yeah. who were taking the goal. So it's it's not that racism melts away in these situations, but, but I think you are right to say that the, that the parameters are changing. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think, is there anything else you'd want to say on the World Cup, Tom? Uh, I'd just be interested, Zoe, I mean, do you think more, I mean, I just watch you, you watching this as a woman, I suppose, because mm-hmm. you've probably been in more public venues watching this. I've been in yeah. some Egyptian bars, which were full yeah. of men, uh, and I've seen a little bit in people's houses in London, but I just wondered, do you think um, that this has been a World Cup? Because it's interesting, out in Qatar itself, some women have welcomed the fact that it's not been a boozy World Cup. Mm-hmm. Actually, that it's created a, a more kind of decorous experience of, of mm-hmm. watching the sport. And it's been nice for women going to cut up. Um, so I just wonder if you have any reflections on to what extent you think women have been excited by this World Cup and whether it represents something that kind of in the wake of the lionesses and women have kind of really engaged with. That's interesting. I, I don't know if women have engaged more with this World Cup as a result of the Lionesses. What I would say is that watching the Lionesses remains the best football watching experience I've ever had, even better than this so-called best final of all time. I think the Lionesses was the best final of all time hmm. because they, unlike the men, you know, they just don't spend half their time throwing themselves on the ground in these performative. I mean, I just can't stand all that. The sort of trying to make it seem like you've been fouled. That's and the way the men play is so rough and tumble that they, you know, as I put in my spectator article is short bursts of running followed by falling down on the ground. That is the men's game, however, you know, uh, skilled. So, I mean, I think the what the Lionesses did was provide a comparator for what the football watching experience can be like. Um, and I do understand, you know, why women in Qatar have enjoyed it. And many, in fact, said it was like watching the, the women's Euros final at Wembley. It was a different atmosphere. It was not thuggish. It was collaborative. It was enthusiastic. It was, yeah, so it was a completely different tenor. And I hate, you know, anything that smacks of hooliganism and thuggery. Mm. And I have no time for it. And I, I find it very odd that so many people embrace football, even though football culture can be so horrible. So, I mean, as a woman watching it in probably the nastiest pub in London, the North Star <laughs> Road with three men um, who were copiously drinking beer in a pub, you know, majority men, but not by any stretch, you know, entirely. 
yeah, it, the atmosphere was actually quite civilized. Um, you know, when when England lost, there was a sense of you know, oh well, that's too bad. But there wasn't a sort of sense that things were going to get out of hand or violence or anything like that. So I think, in a way, I think maybe football has become a bit more decorous. Whether that's mm-hmm. because of the example of the lionesses or simply because because maybe England has basically been better, so there's more you know people feel calmer, they don't feel ashamed. Um, yes. But I'm not sure. But I, I do think women and football is a, is an encounter that has to be watched closely because football brings out something incredibly atavistic in a lot of men. And it's dangerous to women and it's dangerous to other men. So I'm very pleased if things are going in a slightly different direction. And I and as I say, I didn't feel in any way that there was any sort of hint of thuggishness, even though I was watching it in that pub situation. Um, I wonder if in the Arab world, in Egypt, what was the situation with alcohol? What was the situation? You know, how how did the Egyptian fans compare to European fans? And, and were they sort of, did, I don't know, did you watch any of the Arab, like the Iran game or anything like that? I mean, was there a sort of different political agenda uh, in Egypt? There was an enormous amount of pride. So, you know, the Saudi win, and as I say, Egypt is not a country that you know, particularly has warm feelings towards Saudi Arabia. Um, but the Saudi win, uh, against Argentina was completely dominated the news for 48 hours. I mean, but, you know, everybody was kind of elated and thrilled and it was this amazing upset. And it's now obviously incredible to think of Argentina lifting the cup in light of where the where the contest began. And um, I think, you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of tea drinking happens in the in the cafes of Cairo. So it's very vocal, but, you know, it's very participatory. You know, in the same way, if you go into a pub English, you know, the men want to kind of ooh and ah together. It's all about the... Um, you know, it is a collective experience of people shouting at the screens and making lots of noise. Um, but, you know, alcohol is not part of the equation. And it was fun seeing all of the kind of um, energy that football viewing produces and all of the kind of rough and tumble without the alcoholic uh, fuel that in England nearly always accompanies it and nearly always makes things so bitter. And um, in terms of it being more decorous, I think this is one reason why I'm grateful that Gareth Southgate is clinging on, Zoe, because whatever else he might be, and maybe he doesn't have the killing tactical streak he is a gentleman. Yeah. And I think he's done a very good job of creating a tenor around English football that feels quite different. You know, from the waistcoat onwards, he's a thoroughly oh, nice man. Yes. And that is important, especially when FIFA is full of such idiots and like Infantino and all these people. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, yeah, it, Gareth Southgate is a sort of glorious uh, antidote to all that. Great. So, Zoe, as a final point, and it's a simple one in a sentence or two, why the hype for the World Cup? Does it really matter? Is this just a overblown media spectacle or you think the world cup actually does deserve the attention and the excitement that it generates well that's a complicated question you you might be asking the wrong person i mean i i actually (laughs) don't think it does because i actually think football's fundamentally much more boring than you would think given how many millions uh if not billions of people are obsessed with it i mean i think there's also history at play you know Mm -hmm. the the World Cup is the World Cup. And at various times in history, it means different things to different countries. Um, You know, I think when that much national pride, you know, it's a sort of safe zone for national pride. And when that much national pride is bound up with that much money, um, you know, you're going to have, it's quite the conflagration. I think it's strange it's a bit like religion to me. It's, it's a bit unclear why people get so transported by it. Um, and make these, you know, men who are doing physically amazing things, but into kind of gods. Um, 
Uh, but, you know, a country like Argentina, or if it had been Morocco, I mean, that that would, you know, they'd dine out, on, they would dine out on that for, for decades. I mean, look at look at England, still dining out on 1966. Absolutely. Uh, so what, what do you think? Why do you think the hype? I think you're right to say it is, it is invariably part of contemporary history. And as much as I sometimes think football is preposterous, there is a way that it helps you understand the passing of time and that these victories as you say become reference points in all of these countries going forward and um, i was reading a little bit about croatia you know, this has been a kind of tournament of underdogs let's say again yes the morocco story is amazing and i'm sure hollywood's going to take it up but croatia another amazing world cup i mean they came second uh four years ago came third this year this is a country of less than four million people and yet somehow performing at the very top level so there's something there is a kind of moment where the the kind of global hierarchy the power structures the geopolitics gets undermined in a delicious way by football but sometimes small far less wealthy countries are able to overperform in a way that is that is always kind of exciting and this and the is magic, the, yes. of the underdog absolutely and the kind of mystery as to why certain teams are able to you know why should croatia be so much better than america i mean it's a very yeah. interesting question that but one that almost certainly we won't be able to answer <laughs> Um, well, we'll leave it there for now and uh, join us next time for um, analysis of Harry and Meghan and that infamous Netflix docuseries. Music